In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Rulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded then to be tweaked to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week, the book for this week that I'll talk about on Next Monday's show is Already Enough by Lisa Oliveira. Already Enough, A Path to Self-Acceptance. And so I was definitely drawn by the the title of looking at self-acceptance. I think one of the challenges we have, and Lisa Oliveira is a therapist and a writer. So looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you next week. Uh, The book I read this past week is also by a therapist, but also a writer and one of the great figures in contemporary psychology, Irvin Yalom. And um, this book he wrote, it's a historical, uh, a piece of historical fiction, uh, When Nietzsche Wept, When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin D. Yalom. And even that, I think my pronunciation might be different every time with Nietzsche, because I've heard of Nietzsche, definitely not Nietzsche. I, I, I learned that that you're not supposed to say it that way, uh, when Nietzsche wept by Irvin D. Yalom. Incredible book. If you have not read this, I, I highly recommend it. I think especially as a therapist, I was just fascinated by it, and, and I'll get to why uh, as I discuss the book more closely. But I think anyone would enjoy this book. And it's quite a um, powerful book. It also, to me, was a courageous book. Irvin Yalom is an incredible thinker, a great mind. But I did think the courage to create these conversations that are in the book where Nietzsche is talking to uh, Dr. Joseph Brewer, and they in some ways are creating therapy. That part of it uh, is more fiction than history. Um, but I thought that was pretty courageous, and he does do a remarkable job of creating these very deep conversations between the two. So this book involves... Uh, Joseph Brewer, this doctor, who was a medical doctor. Again, we look at the time period around 1882. Um, psychotherapy had not been invented yet. The talking cure had not been invented at this time. And Dr. Joseph Brewer was a, seems like a general practitioner of sorts, but also did research in neurology. And he did have this case, which was a famous case of Uh, Anna O was the pseudonym that was given to the patient and later was revealed that her name was Bertha Poppenheim. Um, But so he had had this patient who had hysteria, meaning there were symptoms she had. Hysteria was a diagnosis back then. Symptoms that essentially don't have a physiological cause. Uh, We might now call it things like conversion disorder or somatization is another type of form related to it. But nonetheless, she had these symptoms that were hard to explain. It was only through talking about them that it seemed that they would go away. And so she herself called it chimney sweeping, this act of cleaning up, getting rid of these types of things, cleaning things uh, up from her mind that led to the cure or the 
her uh, symptoms decreasing or going away. And later, apparently, she herself came up with the term talking cure, which you sometimes hear. We hear talk therapy or a talking cure. So uh, as opposed to, let's say, a medical type of a cure or, or treatment. So a lot of the book, because it's historical fiction, it relates to real characters in history. Dr. Joseph Brewer was a very actually prominent um, doctor, but also had a huge influence on the development of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis because Sigmund Freud was actually um, his mentee. So Joseph Brewer was his mentor. And so this case of Anna O and their work together actually was very pivotal on Freud or impacted Freud and what he developed later. What I find humorous at times is we try to figure out who came up with what. We can be so fixated on trying to give full credit to some one person who invented this or who created this theory. So I even saw some articles as I was researching for for the show saying maybe Joseph Brewer is the true father of psychotherapy. Um, and so we're trying to say who gets the full credit when really any idea, there's nothing new under the sun. Any idea that's been created is going to be usually a type of a team or cumulative effort over time that happened. So Freud was heavily, heavily influenced by Joseph Brewer, who also I'm sure was influenced by others as well. But nonetheless, so these characters are real and we do see in the book, uh, I think that's why it's fascinating for anyone, but I think especially if you are close to the field of psychology, because you, you see Freud, a young, a young Freud who is meeting with Joseph Brewer having dinner or having conversations, and he's really the pupil in a way, and you can see how he is being um, affected by what he learns from Dr. Brewer, but also sharing some thoughts about the unconscious. At times they don't call it the unconscious, sometimes they do, but this type of uh, concept that we are not just what we are aware of. There is more happening behind the scenes in our psyche, and that is a theme that, that comes up throughout the book. So really the theme of the book or the central focus of the narrative and when i read fiction most of the books i do on this show are non-fiction but i always want to be careful when i do books uh, that are fiction that i don't do too many spoilers so that if you want to read the book um you know you won't know what's going to happen there will be some as i discuss the book but a book like this even if you know what's going to happen it's more about the process and the contents of what happens than knowing, for example, who the murderer is in some kind of murder mystery. It, it still, I think, would be interesting even if you do know some of the things I will share. Uh, and I'll see how I can be careful that if you haven't read the book, you can still enjoy it, uh, whether or not you, you listen to what I say next. But we, we meet this Dr. Brewer in, in Venice, and he is approached by this woman who knows Frederick Nietzsche, this great philosopher, who is at that time n unknown. He was a professor at the University of Basel, but he was not well known at all. He actually talks about it in, in the book how um, many of his not many of his books have been sold. That he actually thinks he's ahead of his time. So maybe in a hundred years, or it says the year two thousand. Again, this is late eighteen eighties or in the eighteen eighties. Um, people will understand him or will read him, but that the world is in some ways not ready for him. But nonetheless, he's not doing well. He has these horrible migraines. Um, but it seems like it's more than just that. It's not just that he has migraines. He also seems to have despair. And that seems to be something that they're thinking about. How can we treat despair? Nonetheless, this woman says that we have to find a way for Nietzsche to get treated by you, but for his despair, because we heard about this case of Anna O, oh, where you helped her through talking 
to overcome her despair. So there's a this whole web of things that go on to try to make this happen. And so it's fascinating. Eventually what starts to happen is there are these therapy sessions. Again, it's not called therapy because then it was not even, uh, it didn't exist as a form of study or form of treatment. And so we see these sessions between Dr. Joseph Brewer and Friedrich Nietzsche, where the story will unfold and you'll see it's not really clear who's the patient and who is the doctor, but they start to have these conversations. And it's really, really riveting to see how these conversations unfold, the ways they change over time. Also, at the end of those chapters where they're having sessions, we see notes from both Dr. Brewer and Nietzsche, where they are basically sharing their thoughts about what happened uh, in those sessions or what they're thinking, what they feel happened, how they feel they handled certain things, also the direction they want things to go in, because both individuals in a way have their own agenda or think they have their own agenda. And it's uh, fascinating to see how they intertwine and come together in some ways uh, as as the novel unfolds. So reading that to me was interesting. It was like reading... Um, Again, it's not clear who's the therapist, who's the patient, or who's the client, but hearing from both sides of the conversation their own thoughts about what happened, their own inner workings, and what they're planning to do next and seeing what does happen next. And so we also see this sense that uh, who is helping whom is really uh, clear. He, he thinks he's going to help him, but in the end Nietzsche is helping him, but he gets help in the process. And we see that it's really not clear who's the helper and who's the helpee. Both both really do grow through this um, experience. And you see a lot of the themes that we recognize in psychotherapy as significant, building the relationship and the rapport being so significant. And we see how that relationship unfolds between the two of them. You see different defenses they both have and how they deal with certain things. Uh, dreams come into play and how they might give us some clues into the unconscious. And we know that Freud heavily believed in the importance of dreams as the royal road to the unconscious and how we can learn so much about it through our dreams. And so we see them dissecting dreams together. But it, it was just really like a, you know, I know I talked about murder mysteries, but it had that type of a mystery feel of trying to understand what was going to happen next. How were they going to come to some kind of understanding of each other. There is some duplicity because they both are hiding some things from each other throughout and at certain times. And then we see the development of closeness or real emotional intimacy that is in most ways the, the cure or the curing element of therapy is that type of emotional intimacy and, and connection. And so there's techniques that they're trying to at times develop or how did this work or how is this working? But what we find, what we really find in therapy itself is that the relationship and that closeness is what allows for the healing to happen. Often it's not some specific type of technique that is, is causing that to happen. Um, but what I want to do later in the show is there's so many incredibly powerful lines in the book, and I've chose uh, three of them, selected three of them that I will in the next segment uh, expound on because I think they're so powerful and, and, and just really impactful. And as I read them, I paused every time and was like, wow, this is really something. And so Irvin Yalom, um, through the mouths of these great characters and great individuals in philosophy and psychotherapy and medical history, 
share some really insightful things that are his own. I at times looked up to see if these were things that Nietzsche had said or they were from uh, Yalom himself, and often they were from Yalom. He does, uh, you know, share a lot from their his books and his thoughts. So he just shares philosophy and his books come up, although he tried to be very historically accurate. So the books only he had written up to that point were um, discussed or were shared. And so we see him also as he's trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, but there was definitely a lot of historical accuracy. What I read myself and did a little bit of research, um, it, it was clear that he had really made sure to make it as accurate as possible. And he talks about that, how he consulted with people, uh, experts on Nietzsche and on what unfolded during those times, which made a huge impact. And I also liked something he has at the end and an afterward here that history, it's not from him, it's Andre Guide or Gide, G-I-D-E. History is fiction that did happen, whereas fiction is history that might have happened. And he says that's what he was trying to write in this book was fiction is history that might have happened when he wrote this book, When Nietzsche Wept. Um, just, it's incredible to, to think of that, just that prospect of Nietzsche going to therapy or serving as the therapist, essentially. As I mentioned, roles are in some ways unclear or can go back and forth as, as you read the book. But if you are interested in anything, you've heard me talk about this book, but especially if you're a therapist or in any way interested, I can't recommend it highly enough. And as I shared last week, uh, I'd heard of this book. Of course, Yalom is incredibly well known in the the field of psychology, and any therapist has heard his name and probably read some of his books. I read his book with his wife, Marilyn, that they wrote in the last year of, of her life. Last year, it was released, A Matter of Death and Life, which was incredibly powerful for me, and I'm very happy I had read it. And I got to have a session with him last year in uh, November. And in that session, he actually recommended this book specifically during our conversation. So I wanted to make sure I did read it. And so I got it actually not shortly after that, but only got to reading it this week and very happy I did. I hope you will check it out if you haven't already. Again, that's When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin D. Yalom. After the break, I will get into a few of the more powerful quotes for myself that came up in the discussions. Uh, we'll get into those after the break. All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this segment, I wanted to um, expound on three important quotes that stood out to me in the book When Nietzsche Wept by Irvin D. Yalom. And all of them are from Nietzsche in these conversations he's having with Dr. Joseph Brewer and uh, all very powerful and really stood out to me. So the book, the subtitle is a novel of obsession and that theme runs throughout the book, these obsessions that they both actually have. Uh, but there's this quote, more in love with desire than with the desired. More in love with desire than with the desired. Meaning that we are more in love with that feeling of being, feeling desire, in ourselves towards someone than the actual object, the person that we are desiring. And that's relevant to obsession as well in the sense that when we obsess over someone and we, let's say, idealize someone we've met or we're in love with someone, we think they're so great, what we're really doing is we're creating them to be something that they are not, which means it's probably fulfilling something for us unconsciously. And 
for me, something that I remember early in my understanding of psychotherapy and looking at why we do the things that we do that was very powerful was that usually if something feels bad, we think, oh, it just feels bad. But often when we look deeper, we recognize there there might be a reason why we like to experience that thing that feels bad. Or for example, an obsession can serve some type of a purpose to obsess over someone or something. And then someone will tell you, no, I hate it. I can't shake it out of my head. I don't want to obsess over this person or this thing or whatever it might be. But underneath that, it could serve some kind of function or purpose in an unconscious way. For example, uh, obsessing over someone other than your partner allows for you to not face actually being with your partner in the moment or experiencing your own life to a degree. So we often obsess in a way over some other thing, this desired thing that we have, especially that's external, because it allows us to avoid safely living our life. And so many people in relationships think, oh, I'm with my partner and I'm stuck here, but only if I was with that other person, someone they've recently met or met at work and don't know that well. And so we've idealized this person we don't really know. And because we're not that close to them, we don't see the cracks and and how they're imperfect. And we then look at our own person and we think, oh, look at this person I have. If only I was with that person. Look at the passion and the obsession, how I can't stop thinking about that person. But we precisely can't stop thinking about them because we can see them from perf- as being perfect from a distance. And it's always safer to imagine something or someone else rather than what is right in front of you. Uh, I'm reminded of Stephen Mitchell's book, Can Love Last, where he talks about fantasies. And that was the first time I heard this expressed in this way that people often say my sex life with my partner is boring. I don't really enjoy it. It's repetitive. It's not that interesting. What's really exciting are these fantasies that I have. And, you know, it's so crazy and all these things happen. I can do all the stuff that I can never do with my partner. He or she would not let me do with them. And I wish I could have that fantasy. But as he pointed out in that book, although we think of fantasies as so wild and exciting, really in our fantasies, we have complete control over everything. So it's not that wild and crazy at all. It's very predictable. You can make exactly what you want to happen to happen in your mind. But in the genuine emotional intimacy you have with your partner, it is all unpredictable. So much can unfold that in any just moment of that, there's really more excitement if we look at it closely and experience it fully than there is in some imagined fantasy. Even though the fantasy you could imagine things that seem outlandish, true emotional intimacy, there's a lot more on the line there and true physical intimacy. So to me, that's relevant to this theme of we want to be, it's more about being in love with desire than with the desired, because at times it serves some kind of function to feel a certain way, rather than to be in genuine relationship with what is actually right in front of us. Um, Let's see, the two, I think I'll save this last one in my mind for last. So uh, another one, uh, this is from Nietzsche also, not to take possession of your life plan is to let your existence existence be an accident. And when I say from Nietzsche, this is from the book when Nietzsche wept, not from his writings. So not to take possession of your life plan is to let your existence be an accident. And the reason why I liked this quote so much, sometimes I, I've said it this way, um, if you don't make your life or live a purposeful life and consciously live your life, Life happens to you. You don't live your life. It just happens to you. And most of us 
we'll recognize that there's a lot of our life that is this way, if not all of it. It's just the things we've fallen into doing. If we look at, for example, the way you use your time in a week, most people would likely not say, that's how, not how I would want to do it if I could plan it myself. If I could look at my week or someone told me what would a good week look like for you, a realistic one, most people would say, why am I wasting so much time doing this or spending so much time doing that? I would do other things. But it's precisely because we don't consciously approach our life. At times, we let it happen to us. So this idea of taking possession of your life plan, I thought was really powerful because I think so often we don't recognize that if we don't consciously approach approach our life and with purpose, it's just going to happen to you and you'll end up somewhere you don't want to live or no, don't want to be. And in Irvin Yalom's book with his wife, Marilyn Yalom, um, A Matter of Death and Life, he talked about death anxiety and this concept that death anxiety is negatively correlated to the regrets that we have in our life. So if you live your life more fully, um, you will have less death anxiety because you have less regrets about not living your life fully. And in the book, there's this quote, and I think it actually is a Nietzsche quote that he says about dying at the right time, which sounds kind of funny because we do think about dying being out of our control, which it is to an extent, but it means living your life fully so that when you die, it's the right time to die because you've lived your life fully. And so I think that's relevant to this theme of taking possession of your life plan to make sure you you take it seriously and you live the life you want because we all fall into some kind of life that maybe we did not choose for ourselves in many ways it's been chosen for us and that's a theme that in the book especially in Nietzsche's philosophy about um, choosing your life and living the life you want and living the life that you think is right to obey yourself rather than obeying others um, and although it's safer to obey others or easier to do that, but that we're responsible to ourselves to live our own life. Uh, and several times throughout the book, he says things like finding your path. I can't tell you your path, or even if I tell you my path, you can't just take that on as your own path. You have to find your own way. And so uh, those were two. And this last one really, I think, uh, struck me the most because it's just a few words but it's so powerful, just four words. Living safely is dangerous. Living safely is dangerous. And so, of course, it's very powerful because it has that juxtaposition that if you're living in a safe way, how could that be dangerous? But I think most people will have a reaction to that. Living safely is dangerous and recognizing the danger of living um, a safe life of wasting your life in that way by not actually taking chances. And I'm trying to find in the book, I remember it was page 223 because it stuck out to me so much that I, I wanted to look at it again and seeing this part of the conversation. Um, you know, he says, maybe Joseph living safely is dangerous, dangerous and deadly. And so I think it's quite powerful. And it also relates to obsession in the book when he's choosing to focus on his obsession, which might seem, again, more exciting, more extravagant, but actually it's a lot safer that way. And so I think it's important for us all to look at that. In what ways are you living safely in your life? And so this doesn't mean take erratic risks or do things that are stupid and reckless, but it really means to me living your life more fully, 
but we all tend to think, well, I, I can't do that. And, you know, I, I shouldn't change course in this way or try this new thing because I don't know what's going to happen. Or I'm not sure if I'll be good at this or if it'll work out. Or I'm not sure about starting a relationship because I can get hurt or um, something can happen to me. So in all those ways, we can say we're choosing the safer path. You know, and there's life advice like better safe than sorry. Well, this is a great way of challenging that. Sometimes living, doing the safe thing is dangerous because you will be wasting your time. You can't stop the marching of time going forward and you will look back and look at all the things you did not do. So when we think to ourselves, well, I can get hurt in a relationship, you most definitely can. And really anything good worth having means we have to open up ourselves to the risk of what comes along with that, whether it's relationships, some type of work, being a parent, anything that has great value comes with great risks. We have to risk getting hurt in a variety of ways to actually be able to enjoy it. So if we look at our own life, we will likely see that there's so many ways that we live safely. And again, it's not to be reckless, but it comes to my mind that we can be so preoccupied with not dying not doing something that can hurt us, that we actually are not living because of that. We just want to make sure we don't die. And then the truth is you're going to die anyway. No matter what you do, we all die. We're going to march towards the death and time ending for us, and at least in this plane, depending on whatever you believe. But that time will be finite. It will go away. And so we do have this biological tendency to want to stay alive, and it's good that we have that you know, looking at even Freudian types of things, survival instinct that we have. But if we don't recognize that it's going to make us make choices that don't let us live fully, we can recognize we haven't fully lived. And so when I read this quote, I really had to actually stop reading and was just struck by it. Live, living safely is dangerous. And of course, I could relate to it and see things in my own life where I could recognize I might be choosing to live safe, or I definitely am in many areas of life. And as I said, I hope you will think about that too. These types of quotes, it's something that you might post on social media or see someone post and it sounds interesting and powerful, and it is, but really if we're going to live by it or if we think it's so great, we have to live by it. And it would be living safely just to, to say the quote rather than to actually try to live the quote and try to recognize, well, if I'm living safely and I think that's wrong, what steps can I do to challenge that? And it's always going to feel like a challenge because the safer route is going to feel more comfortable. It's going to feel easier. It's going to feel right. And almost always that unsafe path, we're going to have reasons not to do it. Well, it's too soon. Don't want to rush into anything. You know, I got to think about it a little bit more. But that's often our form of avoidance to say, I'm actually not just avoiding it. I'm trying to be responsible and take my time and thinking about it and working through it before I just jump in. That would be reckless. And so we always have to ask ourselves, where, where are we lying on that side of things? Are we being reckless or are we being actually avoidant? Often we find that people are avoidant because I'll see this often in therapy where we recognize, okay, it looks like you need to do this. But it almost always feels like it's not the right time. Well, you know, yeah, I need to do it, but not yet, you know. Maybe I should wait till 
next week or till this thing happens or that happens. And it's not really because the timing is wrong. It's just that the time will always feel wrong to do something that's uncomfortable. So it's not that the timing is wrong, but that the time will always feel wrong to do something that's uncomfortable, but we must overcome that and go forward anyway. If you want to have an uncomfortable conversation with your partner, it's almost always going to feel like the wrong time. Why not wait till tomorrow? And that relief you get when you avoid it momentarily feels so good that it reinforces the procrastination. This is something we feel whether we're working on homework and we distract ourselves with social media, that relief when you go away from the anxiety feels so good. Unfortunately, it's self-reinforcing and it makes it easier to procrastinate and harder to break through. But I hope we'll, we'll take that advice seriously, that living safely is dangerous. Let's not waste our lives living safe. And this mindset of there's always a later time, remembering that life is finite, there won't always be time. Every moment you lose is a moment lost. You can't get it back. We have to make the time now. All right, let's go to our last commercial break now. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment of changing subjects, um, not significantly, but in some ways, because actually it relates to me in some ways, uh, but I'll, I'll get into it now. Um, one of the things that happened with the, or is happening with social media and the ways that we are relating through social media is it's interesting that we are let into other people's lives more in the sense that, you know, we can see, of course, celebrities post what's going on in their lives. Um, that's something people enjoy. Also, we get to see different people with different types of lives and showing how they live or what they go through, which also can be good because I think it exposes us to a diversity of experiences from all sorts of factors and characteristics. And that could be good and learn from one another and about one another. And I think that can be good. But one of the things that also happens as we're let into other people's lives more is in a way we're also distance from our own lives a bit as well, or we're not experiencing our own lives. So the way I, I think I said it once before was something along the lines of social media, the internet is allowing us to experience other people's lives more, but also is making us experience our own lives less or be less connected to our own experience. And so an example of that is you're with a friend having a conversation or with a bunch of friends, and then now you want to take a video of what's going on. And so everyone looks to the phone and kind of maybe makes some noises or sounds or talks to the camera, but it takes away from being in the moment. Or even taking a picture uh, can do that too. Sometimes, of course, we take a picture to capture the moment for ourselves, but often we take pictures because we want to put it on social media and people take time how they're going to take the picture or, you know, there's lots of memes and jokes of people who are, you're about to eat and someone says, no, no, you can't eat because I have to take a picture of the food before we eat in a you know, nice decoration and the way they set things up and try to get the shot just right. And so everyone's waiting now to have the food because they want to take the perfect picture. Or even when people do put these videos up of their life, they are videotaping themselves. Often they take themselves away from their own experience or relating with one another. And I think that's actually unfortunate. It's something to be aware of. And I think what it's done, I, I've seen some reports and things, some people predicting that this is leading to more narcissism. And I think that's actually true to a degree because I think what it's doing is it amplifies 
the type of spotlight effect or the sense that we are living for other people or observers. Because even I've felt it too, and you can see it for many people, something is going on and the thought is, oh, what would people think if they saw this? If I put this on my social media, if I posted it somewhere. And so rather than experiencing their experience, it's more about what will people think about my experience? So unfortunately, it's contributing more strongly to the sense of caring about other people's opinions. More than before, we always had this effect of looking at our life and wondering how people will look at our life and judge our life favorably or unfavorably. Will they think I'm living well or think I'm happy? But now it's even more strong because we think, okay, oh, if I post this, what will people think? Or if I have this experience, what will people think? Or even if I date this person and we post our pictures online, what will it look like to people? And so that's why I've always said things like when you see a picture or a video and people say relationship goals, I think that's unfortunate because no healthy relationship can be captured by what's seen in a picture or a video. But people can get so preoccupied with looking good in a picture or a video that they are focused on how it's going to look. Or when you're picking a partner, physical attraction, sexual attraction is necessary, absolutely necessary. But if you make that the main or only criteria for why you're picking your partner, you won't end up with a nice marriage, but you'll just end up with nice wedding photos. You might look good in the pictures, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a nice marriage because that's going to be based on the relationship that you build. And the physical attraction is just one component of the many that will be important. So I think this is unfortunately one of the consequences of what happens with social media in our digital age right now is that people are sharing their experiences more with others, but experiencing their own experiences less. And I think that is unfortunate. And one area where I see this, and it, it does tend to bother me a lot, is where people post prank videos. Um, so a prank, you know, essentially is when you do something as a joke to someone else and then post it online to make other people laugh. And because what you see happening is that people are being very mean oftentimes to someone right in front of them totally disconnected from their experience with that person of caring for that person, having empathy for that person that they're interacting with, but thinking I'll get attention online or in other ways. And of course, some people even making money. If you post videos and get views and things, you can make a lot of money. So there's people out there that go and do things that are harmful to other people, hurtful in a, they think, playful way, um, but then get paid for it because other people will laugh and enjoy and think it's it's funny and interesting. And I wonder actually, and I'll, I'll put this out there, that if there is a correlation, a negative correlation between people who enjoy these types of videos, prank videos, and empathy, meaning that the more you enjoy them, the less likely you are to be an empathic person. Because when you watch these videos, if you think about the person who is being hurt in whatever way, not maybe hurt to some people will sound extreme, uh, teased or pranked or played with in some way, um, people often don't think about that person and just think of the entertainment that they are getting from it. And I've seen some extreme ones I've shared before. This boyfriend put a stuffed animal with red paint on it close to the uh, tires of her his girlfriend, so it looked to her, at least momentarily, like she ran over her own dog. 
and I couldn't believe that one. And she came out and, of course, was horrified and so sad until she realized that, uh, in fact, you know, it was a stuffed animal and her dog was okay. And reading the comments is always interesting on these videos because people will say things like, well, no one was hurt. The dog was okay and she wasn't physically harmed, which shows very clearly our bias towards physical pain, physical illness in general, medical issues compo compared to medical issues, uh, mental issues, where if you're emotionally going through something very traumatic or very painful, that's not being hurt. If something physically happened, that clearly is. And again, this is where the line gets so blurry. But in that moment when she was thinking she had uh, ran over her own dog with her car, physiologically, so much was going on that was hurtful to her from her breathing to chemicals and things being re released throughout her body. A lot was going on physically, internally. Of course, we could see her physical uh, reactions, but also internally so much was going on. So that's physical too, but there's a very clear way that if we see someone get even cut a little bit, we're like, oh, they got cut, that's blood, that's physical hurt, but oh, emotionally they got hurt, that's nothing, that's not real. So why would we care about that? And so I think it's really unfortunate that this is something that you see happening more and more. And I'm seeing it, even I saw... Uh, a game, a basketball game, and I don't know what happened, but there was something going on with fans and players' family and things like that. I don't even know the details, so I don't want to speak on it, but just the feeling I got from watching it, which I know is very speculative, is that there's a sense that, well, maybe I can get famous or get some attention from this. So we're not even thinking, or, or last week Dave Chappelle got attacked at the Hollywood Bowl while on stage, so I wanted to get attention. But what we see is that people are looking at the people right in front of them as objects much more than as people because it's not about the person you're interacting with. It's this imaginary audience that might exist in the background. Imaginary, the sense that in the moment they're not there, but depending on if you share it and then it goes viral and how many people watch it, how many eyeballs see what happened, you can have an audience. And of course, the more outrageous the thing that you are doing well, then the more likely it is for people to want to see it because people don't want to see something normal or typical. It has to be really out there for people to want to see it and then want to share it and for it to become something that gets viewed a lot. So it's encouraging people to do worse things to people in front of them because of the imaginary audience. I'm not with you right in front of me. I am with the millions and billions of people in the cyber world who could potentially watch what I'm doing with you and to you. And so we are undervaluing the people right in front of us because of some potential of attention from other people. And I think that's quite harmful and detrimental. So something I try to keep in mind when we're, when you're looking at social media and you're seeing all these videos, we often, of course, just see the video as some kind of content, something is happening. But of course, we have to look at the intention too, in the sense that someone, one, videotaped, got a picture, somehow captured whatever is going on, and then also chose to upload it. And both of those are really important factors. So, you know, sometimes even people will have something with their kids and they'll videotape them at some moment, for example, if they're crying or if they're laughing or doing something. And so, of course, I think kids are cute and babies are very cute, but sometimes you have to think, okay, well, what is the parent doing there? Sometimes it's just capturing a cute moment. That's fine. But sometimes you'll see they're playing with the kid in some way or teasing the kid in some way to make them have a reaction and then videotape the reaction and then uploading it. Or even you see people doing nice things, giving money to a homeless person and then, you know, making it seem 
very important and and special and this and then the comments are all positive but there is this feeling of okay you're giving money to someone and showing it and if you did it for that show what was your intention and here i always find a bit of a gray area because i think it's good if we normalize people for example doing kind things to one another helping one another out that is a good thing that would be good to normalize but however you see sometimes when these videos are made very often the person being helped becomes some kind of object again. Watch me help this person because I'm so great, I'm so kind, I'm so good, rather than this person who is there likely is suffering or whatever they're going through just through the accidents of life and the way things go that they're in that position, you're in this one. And so bringing so much attention to it, you know, it's something I think you should also take some pause before you go forward and do something like that. So I always try to be aware of this. I, like anyone, will be on social media or most people on social media and look at different videos. Some of them make me laugh. Some are funny. Some are entertaining. Some are interesting. Some uh, make you feel different types of things, emotional, whatever it might be, something sweet happening between two individuals or between an animal and an individual, whatever it is. But we always have to wonder what makes someone videotape that and to put that online. Don't just take the content in, we do have to be aware of the intentions of what's going on. Uh, or I've seen someone, oh, they're at a restaurant and the person starts to tip the waiter, waitress, the server, lots of money, but then videotapes it and the person has a reaction. It just feels a little bit weird, like the person is being put on display. So I, I try to keep that in mind and wanted to encourage that. But I will come back to this pranking type of a thing because you'll see a lot of these prank videos, someone will, for example, dump a bucket of water on someone's head and then run away. And it can even look funny. I can understand the moment of it can look funny if you just see it for a second. Just like sometimes someone slips and falls, for example, and it could look funny when someone slips. Of course, we always hope they didn't get seriously injured in some way or hurt, physically or emotionally, uh, in some way. But it can look funny. Even I, I sometimes tell this story of when I fell in the shower that was really funny. And the way I say it becomes like this 20-minute long story. And it's really funny. Thankfully, no permanent damage. I was kind of hurting afterwards for, for that day and days afterwards. But I'm doing okay. And I can laugh about it. And we laugh about it with my friends or family when I, when I tell that story. So I can understand it looks funny. For example, you throw a pie at someone's face, dump them with water, or do these things that these people do. But then when you really look at what's going on, someone's, let's say, day was ruined, or at least they went through something um, really difficult or hurtful to them, um, surprisingly out of nowhere. Also, you could laugh for a few seconds, you know, usually it's a few seconds and they go to the next clip, or maybe it's like 20 seconds or something like that. And you laugh and then we go to the next thing. And that's it. It's like, okay, well, that person's day was ruined, but I had 10 seconds of fun. Let's go to something else. And so we want to make sure no one's just used as an object to, for our means, the object for us to feel good uh, or means to that end, I should say, objects to that end of, okay, I got to laugh for a little bit. But what about that person? And so I hope people will have more empathy when you see these videos that the person who is being talked about, talked to, treated in a certain way, pranked, whatever it is, think about that individual as well. And I think there are so many ways to be fun and funny without hurting other people, um, just like in comedy, without insulting people in certain ways. We can still be very, very funny and have a lot of fun and have a good time. 
I don't think we need to do something where someone is getting hurt. And so keep that in mind that I think, unfortunately, I'm seeing that more that it's becoming part of the culture, that we're so detached from what we're seeing that the people in the videos, the people in the pictures are just objects for our entertainment. There is this way that they get dehumanized, similar to how I've talked about celebrities getting dehumanized because they're, we're seeing something on the media, even if it's social media and they're not a famous person, they just, just become this object for our entertainment or enjoyment. And again, to me, it's interesting that it's sometimes someone's day is getting ruined for five seconds for you to laugh. That to me doesn't seem fair, especially someone who obviously didn't volunteer to do it. Yes, a lot of these prank videos are clearly fake and you can tell they are, but often they are likely real and people are being harmed for no reason other than this person thinks maybe it's going to be funny. And sometimes even you see the videos where the person confronts the person and becomes a whole thing. Anyway, but just something to be aware of as you go through your social media to think of everyone involved, the person who maybe is getting hurt or being affected or is being displayed. Sometimes people put these videos making fun of someone or laughing at someone and putting it on the whole prank is where the whole joke is on that person to humanize and remember that person is an individual who doesn't deserve to be ridiculed as no one does. And hopefully it also be more connected to your own experience and be mindful of what you're posting yourself. What is my intention? Can I be overlooking the importance of anyone or their own human value in what, what I'm posting. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.